I was first captured by the story of Camelot when I heard Anne of Green Gables recite Tennyson's poem, The Lady of Shalott. Through the vivid imagination of a red-haired girl from Prince Edward Island, another young girl with very different hair in northern Alberta encountered the legendary land of Camelot and met its king, Arthur. The legend begins long ago in England when a wise and a just king, Uther, ruled the land. Under his rule, times were good and the people lived well. King Uther and his queen, Guinevere, they had a baby boy. And as they were celebrating his royal birth at the castle, Merlin, the magician, came to speak to the king and he said, Sire, soon a great darkness will fall over this land. Your child is in grave danger. Let me take the baby far away. I'll be sure that he stays safe. But the king refused to be parted from his child. And soon after this encounter, Queen Guinevere died. And a short time later, King Uther was killed in battle. And so under the cover of darkness, Merlin stuck into the castle and took the child from the nursery. And nurses and nobles and servants, they searched everywhere, but the child was nowhere to be found. For years, there was no king to sit on the throne, no king to set the laws. Men of high rank fought each other to be king. Darkness fell over the land. Robbers and bands of wild men ruled the streets of London. Evil men broke into houses and they took what they wanted. Travelers on the road were jumped and robbed and the people of England lived in fear. Yet, in a quiet place, far away, a good knight lived in peace and he raised his two boys. The younger, who was an orphan boy, a mysterious man one day had delivered this young boy to him and asked the knight to raise him as his own. One day, a sword that was lodged inside of a large stone appeared in the town square, and it was said that the sword could only be removed by a knight who was brave, strong, and true, the one who was the rightful king. And so the good knight's second son, Arthur, was walking around looking for a sword for his older brother, and he comes upon this, and innocently he pulls the sword from the stone. And all the people cheered. At last they had a king. At last there was something they could feel happy about. And this is how Arthur became the king of Camelot, that mythical castled city where he ruled with his knights of the round table. Brave and noble and true, they loved each other as brothers, and together they defended the weak, and they protected Camelot against invaders. King Arthur's wise and gracious rule brought justice and peace and prosperity to Camelot and her people. But one day, King Arthur was betrayed by those who were closest to him, and then he was mortally wounded in battle. His broken body was laid into a boat, and as it was ready to set sail for the Isle of Avalon, King Arthur spoke from the boat, and he said, I am leaving you now, but I want you to tell the story of King Arthur and Camelot and the Knights of the Round Table, for I will come again one day when my country asks for me. And legend says that King Arthur recovered, and now he rests in Avalon, but one day he will return as king at the time of his country's greatest need to lead his people into battle against their enemies. This mythical story of King Arthur, it's been told for centuries, but its appeal is strongest when times are dark. 
When instability and adversity cast long shadows, good King Arthur, who waits to return and to restore his kingdom and his people to the peace and prosperity of Camelot, it pushes back the darkness with a whisper of hope, a promise of what could be, what might be, if there was a good king who's to sit on the throne, one who would uphold the law, protect and defend his people, lead them to peace and prosperity. A warrior king who would defend the weak but still rule with justice and with mercy. This is the fleeting wisp of glory that is Camelot. Plato is credited with saying that those who tell the stories rule the world. Good stories endure. They point past themselves to something better. A story is 22 times more likely to be remembered than facts alone. The legend of Camelot, it lives on because it is a good story, but it's only a story. It's just made up tales about imaginary king and his kingdom. There is a similar and far better story about a king and his kingdom that we read about in the Bible. It's the story of God, the true king through whom we see how when all seems dark, The hope of a good king is the light that shines in the darkness. So before we look into this story, let's open with a word of prayer. Make the book live to me, O Lord. Show me yourself within your word. Show me myself and show me our Savior. And make the book live to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So why do we long for a king? What is it that a king brings? The story of Camelot reveals that the role and the purpose of a king is to rescue and to rule. A king rescues his people from threat to secure a place and protection for his people. And then a king rules. With a good king on the throne, people live in peace, prosperity, and security. If I were to ask you, who's the first king in the Bible? Some of you might say David, because he's the king that we hear most about in the Bible. Some of you might say, well, it's King Saul, because he was Israel's first king. And some of you might say Jesus, because that always seems like a safe answer when a question is asked in church. But the first king that we encounter in the Bible might seem a little bit obscure at first glance, but it's God. Because we're not familiar with the rule of a monarch who has real power, not just symbolic power like our queen does, we can miss the language of royal edict that is displayed for us in the first chapter of Genesis. But the book's first readers, they would have immediately caught it. They would have seen that in Genesis 1, we're being introduced to God as king because there's formlessness. There's emptiness, there's darkness. And then we hear the royal decree, let there be light. And because a king's word brings action, when God unleashes this symphony of speech, the darkness is pushed back, the formless is given shape, and the emptiness is filled. God the king, he creates a place, and then he fills it with all that is beautiful and good and necessary for life. He creates people to enjoy it all. And these people, they're special because they're his image bearers. They're images that are placed inside the kingdom to point to the glory of its king. And these image bearers, they're given this amazing purpose 
of being the king's vice regents. So they're sort of like the knights of his round table. They get to rule alongside him in the same way, in the same manner in which he rules. So the king of the Bible has secured a place for his people, and then he does what all ancient kings did after they had established their dominion. He rests. Here is a kingdom in which all is good. There is a good king. There is a happy people, and they're enjoying peace and prosperity and security. So after hearing the story of King Arthur and Camelot, this sounds familiar, doesn't it? And there are more similarities between the two stories. King Arthur, if you read the legends, he is often portrayed not only as a wise and just king, but as a father figure in Camelot. He's the king who provided for and protected his people, but he's also the father who is with his people. He knew them. He was one of them. The king of the Bible is portrayed in the same way. Yes, he provides for and protects his people as their king, but he isn't a distant or an unapproachable king. He walks with and talks with his people like a father would with his children. And sadly, just like the magic of Camelot was broken when those closest to the king betrayed him, the kingdom that we're shown in the opening chapters of Genesis, it meets the same fate. God's image bearers, his vice regents, they rebel against him and the glory of the kingdom is marred. Great darkness falls upon the land and the people, they need a way back into the fullness of the kingdom and the presence of its king. They need a way back to that peace and prosperity and security that they had known before they rebelled. And the king of the Bible, he is a good, and he is a loving king, and he knows his people, they can't get back into his kingdom without his help. So he says, I'll bring you back. And then working in and through different people from different places over centuries, God grows a nation from one couple who is old and childless. And this nation is eventually enslaved by a foreign kingdom with a wicked king. But God comes to the rescue. He rescues his people, and he brings them to this place that he had planned and prepared for them. And there was a lot of battles that had to be fought along the way, but God went ahead of his people as their warrior king. He defeated all their enemies to bring them safely into their land. But the story still doesn't unfold in ways that sounds a lot like Camelot because the people were pretty persistent in their rebellion. A lot of times their leaders were not great leaders. And so discouraged these people who were not experiencing the peace and the prosperity in their land, they went to their leader, Samuel, and they said, we want to be like the nations around us. We want a king. We need a king. We are tired of living at the edge of darkness, always fearfully pushing back these shadows that are threatening to us. And Samuel, he wasn't happy because he knew God was their king. He knew that the people's request for a king, that was evidence that they had rejected God as king, that they believed that a good king would look less like God and more like the kings of the nations around them. But God said to Samuel, give the people what they're asking for, because sometimes you need to get what you want to see that what you want isn't what you need. And so the people got their king. They got a king of their choosing and in their image. It was King Saul. And he didn't often rule God's people 
as God's king. More often, he ruled for his own benefit and according to his own will. And so the people continued to be harassed by their enemies. They didn't know pervasive peace or prosperity. And so God picked the next king. He picked a king whose heart loved him. A king who knew that his role was not to replace the true king, but to represent him, to point to him, to rule in such a way that reflected and honored him. And this king over Israel was David. And David wasn't the perfect king, but he was a great warrior who rescued the people from their enemies. David fought and secured the city of Jerusalem. He built these great walls around it so that it was a stronghold. He built a palace in Jerusalem. He defeated those dreaded Philistines who had harassed the people of God throughout their time in the land. David even brought the Ark of God into the city of Jerusalem. Safe and secure, at peace, and enjoying prosperity, the people saw their king and their kingdom established and exalted because it was ruled by a good king who reflected and who imaged the true king. Yet, threatening shadows still lurked. There had been a king before David, but he hadn't been a good king, and so he didn't last. And the light might be shining now, but darkness never seemed that far away. What if David's reign was only holding it at bay temporarily? What if this was just the calm before another storm? Yes, there was peace now, but war was not a distant memory. Yes, there was prosperity now, but famine? That was just a couple of missed rain showers away. And they had peace now, but the Philistines? I mean, they weren't the only enemies who could raise their ugly heads. Was darkness always going to be encroaching upon the light? David knew that his kingdom, it had been established and secured by God. And so one night, as he's looking around at his fine house of cedar, his permanent palace, David realized that if he and his people wanted the sure hope of holding darkness at bay, their true king was going to have to have a permanent home among his people as well. So David calls over Nathan the prophet and he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build God a house. It's not good enough for just me to be in a permanent house. God needs one too. And at first, Nathan's like, well, that sounds like an amazing idea. But then God appeared to Nathan, and he had a message for David. So let's see what the eternal king has to say to Israel's king, as it's recorded for us in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 7 through 16. And friends, this is the word of God. In all the places where I have moved with all the people, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them 
so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lay down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Isn't that a spectacular message of hope from God to David? David's people, they were first and foremost God's people. God was their king. In verses 10 and 11, we see God repeatedly reinforce that these people are his people. He says, I'll appoint a place for my people, just like I'm the one who appointed judges for my people. So God was their king, but he wasn't a king who ruled from a distance. He's the king who was with his people. He says, I have been with you wherever you went. In all the places where I have moved with the people of Israel. So a king has a people, and it's his job to secure for them a place, a home, a kingdom. And God says to David, I'm the one who picked the place, and I'm the one who brought you guys there. He's the one who planted them in their place so that they could put down roots and they could live. It says in verse 10, I will appoint a place for my people. I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. So once a king has secured a place for his people, his job is to protect them. And the God of angel armies, the true warrior king, he tells David that, He's the one who has been with them all along, cutting off and defeating their enemies. Thus says the Lord of hosts. That's the God of angel armies. I've been with you wherever you went, cutting off your enemies from before you. I'm the one who planted my people in a place they would be disturbed no more, where violent men couldn't afflict them anymore. I'm the one who's going to give you rest from your enemies. So good kings, they bring a place, protection, peace, and prosperity to their people. But in the words of God to David, there is an even better promise. And it's the promise of permanence. In answer to that haunting fear of having grasped onto something good, but something elusive, something temporal, God says, I am going to establish a kingdom for my people, a safe place to dwell a place of protection and peace and rest and security. And it's going to last not just for a long time, but forever. He says, when your offspring comes, I'm going to establish the throne of his kingdom forever. My steadfast love will not depart from him. His house, his kingdom will be made sure forever. The throne will be established forever. And so King David, he knew he could only be a good king if he reflected the better 
the truer king. That's why he wanted to build a house, a permanent place for God in his kingdom. But God, the king, in comforting assurance, he says to David, you want to build me something that in your human mind is permanent for me. But as eternal God and king, I'm going to build something permanent for you. Something that isn't going to last just as long as you can imagine with your human finiteness, but something that I, infinite and eternal God, is going to secure forever. I will build for you a house, a name, and a kingdom, and it's going to be everlasting. And so undone by the goodness of God, David worships. And then he sins greatly. He steals another man's wife, gets her pregnant, murders her husband, marries her. Their baby dies. Even a good king can do terrible things. And so is this going to undo those promises that were made by the true king? No. David and Bathsheba, they have another child, and they name him Solomon. And Nathan comes again to David with another message from God. And he says, you have named this child Solomon, but... Because this child is loved by the Lord, he's also going to be called Jedediah, which means beloved of the Lord. This was the son through whom God's promises were going to come. Solomon was the son who was chosen to sit on David's throne. He's the one who was going to build a permanent home for God in Jerusalem. And God was with Solomon and made him exceedingly great. The Bible tells us that during Solomon's reign, silver was as common as stones in Jerusalem, and cedars as plentiful as sycamores. King Solomon, he surpassed all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And in fact, all the kings of the earth came and sought the presence of Solomon to hear the wisdom that God had put into his mind. David and Solomon, they were the best of Israel's kings. Under their rule, the people lived secure in their place, enjoying peace and prosperity. For 80 years, 40 years under King David and 40 years under King Solomon, the people lived in this increasing crescendo of glory as the light of good kings shone bright and the darkness retreated. And 80 years can sound like a long time, but living in the second half of that time span, it doesn't feel as long as it did as when it was in the first half of the time span. It's long, but it's certainly not forever. And even the best of human kings leaves something to be desired. Solomon, the man who wrote that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, he didn't practice what he preached. He abandoned the Lord. He built shrines for other gods, and he started the nation's descent back into darkness. Their enemies crept near and eventually defeated the people and removed them from their place. There's no peace, no security, certainly no prosperity. There's only darkness. For years, there was no king to sit on the throne, no king to set the laws. Men fought each other to be king. Darkness fell over the land. Robbers and bands of wild men ruled. Evil men took what they wanted, and the people lived in fear. And then, in the darkness of a troubled land with a wicked king, while Herod sat on the throne of Israel and Judah, when the people were in great need of a king to rescue them 
and lead them into battle against their enemies, a king who is going to rule with justice and with righteousness. An angel appeared to a young girl in a quiet and almost forgotten place. It was time. A king would be born. Behold, said this angel to Mary, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. The light shone in the darkness because a king was born. And after he had grown to become a man, this king proclaimed that God's kingdom had come. He pushed back the darkness with the good news that he shared with those who were in the dark of fear and captivity to sin. But what kind of king wears a crown of thorns? What kind of king is exalted on a cross-shaped throne? What kind of king suffers a mortal wound? What kind of king recovers and then leaves with the promise that he'll return? It's Christ Jesus, our king, the king whose coming we remember through Advent, and the king whose coming we long for through Advent. Our noble, brave, and true king moved into the neighborhood to be with us and to rescue us. He defeated the enemy that fights against us and the one that fights within us to secure a permanent peace for his people. And now physically he's gone away, not to Avalon to rest and recover. He's defeated death. He can't be defeated by it. But he's left our world to ascend to his throne in heaven, and there he's preparing a place for his people. And if he has gone to prepare that place, we know he's going to come back for his people so that they can be with him where he is. He's going to come back to bring his people into the eternal peace and rest and prosperity that he has won for them. Our king is on his throne and he hasn't left us alone. He's poured out his spirit to live within us and to secure every spiritual blessing for those who wait for his, for his return. This is the mystery and this is the beauty of Advent. It is the true story we tell that perhaps rings truest when the darkness presses in. And press in it does. But through the story of the once and the coming king, we see that the darkness is not going to win. As we celebrate the king who has come, as we wait for his return, let's fix our eyes upon him rather than look for kings made in our image for kingdoms of our choosing that might look like what we want, but they can't give us what we need. Let's wait with hope in the darkness for the king who came to secure peace for his people and the king who will come to secure the place for his people. The light shines in the darkness. A king is born. O come, O come, Emmanuel before Pastor Clyde comes to lead us in communion. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father and Eternal King, thank you for being our light in the darkness. Prepare our hearts for the day that you come to banish it forever. Amen. 
That's a great question, isn't it? What kind of king goes to a cross? And as Arlene guided us in seeing, a king who treasures you, a king who offers you life, a king who is coming again, which prompts us again to this table in this season of Advent as we come remembering what Christ has done and remembering that he is returning again. And so I invite you, friends, as we come to the bread and the cup to both remember what Christ has done, but in this meal, through the Spirit of Christ, receive from him. So we break this bread and we'll drink the cup and we ask of God our Father, O Father, would you spiritually feed us with this meal, for we come in faith. And so I'd invite you, friends, to take the bread that's before you, and if you would, hold it for a moment. In all of our different gathering places, we hold the bread and we remember the body of Christ broken for you, received from him. And then with the cup, we come, even in this Advent season, holding on to the wonder that the blood of Christ was poured out for you. So drink and receive from your King. And Father, we do thank you for your grace and goodness, the wonder of what you've done through your Son, And I pray that as we walk through this week, we would know the kingship of Christ in our lives. Guide us in this, we pray, through the Spirit of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So good we could join together, friends, and thank Arlene uh, for teaching us in this time. And do again, I invite you to come back in the days ahead of us for Christmas Eve and for Boxing Day. Now here's what's happening for Christmas Eve. We have five Christmas Eve services on site. You can go to our website. You need to register for those ahead of time. They are getting filled up, so I'd encourage you to do that quickly. Or you can join in with our online liturgy that you can find on our website for Christmas Eve. And then again, on the following weekend, on that weekend, December 25th and 26th, we're not gathering on site. We are having home for Christmas. So we again will have an online liturgy on our website that you and those with you can join in on Christmas Day or Boxing Day to be part of your at-home Christmas celebration. And now as you walk into this week and whatever it does hold for you, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of his Holy Spirit this week, you may abound in hope in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.